Good morning, church family. My name is Annie Neufeld. I'm the pastor of small groups here at Lake Avenue Church. And this morning, I get the joy and privilege of bringing God's word to us. A couple weeks ago, Pastor Jeff began us in a theme on humility in this series on truth and wisdom. And he began talking to us about what humility was through the lens of Proverbs 30. And then we had a couple of different weeks. We had our congregational meeting and Pastor Greg's last Sunday with us. And today I get to pick back up with that theme of humility through the lens of one of our Proverbs. We're gonna, or excuse me, parables. We're gonna be in Luke 18, nine through 14. So would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? Luke 18, starting in verse nine. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a 10th of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. So I remember a story from when I was a kid that's really been seared into my memory. Many of you probably have heard uh, the emperor's new clothes. It was about a vain and pompous emperor who desired the most luxurious clothes in all the land. And one day two weavers come to him with a promise that they could make clothes so fine and so special that only the elite could see them. They would be quite invisible to anyone who was stupid or incompetent. Um, What's more, they would be so delicate and so fine that the person wearing them would barely be aware of them draped over their body. Of course, the weavers are nothing more than a pair of con men and they have in mind to swindle the emperor. They've heard of his hubris and they're going to take advantage of him. The emperor provides them with all the wealth, all the riches in the empire, and they pretend to be hard at work, but all along they weave nothing. In the end, they present to him their magnificent final product, these luxurious new clothes. And the emperor, of course, sees nothing because there's nothing to see. But to admit that would be to admit stupidity. So he pretends to see what can't be seen in his pride. And his followers, his courtiers, do the same. In the final scene, we see the emperor traipsing through town, showing off his magnificent new clothes when a child pipes in and says, but he hasn't got anything on. Slowly but surely, everyone else realizes it too, including the emperor himself, but he continues in the procession because to turn back now would be to admit his own stupidity. Better to carry on with the charade than to admit ignorance. Now, this story really shocked me as a child. I think I felt the emperor's shame and public humiliation right there with him. Um, the story is meant to be a warning against things like pride and vanity, that pride really does come before the fall. And I heard that warning loud and clear. But what this story also did for me was to paint pride in such extravagant hues that I never really saw myself in its shadow. Pride and arrogance were something that other people struggled with 
I would never be capable of that kind of self-delusion and vanity that the story just didn't apply to me. Now, I think that, that view is how we understand the parable that we read today. In the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector, I think many of us, if we were asked, who do you identify with the most in this story? We'd want to say the tax collector. We want to believe that we are humble people. Again, pride is something that other people struggle with. The emperors of the world, the bigwigs. It's not something that I need to pay attention to. But I think this passage actually invites us to see ourselves in the Pharisee. To, to believe that Jesus might have been talking to us too about our own self-righteousness, that perhaps we too have something to learn from Jesus in this story. While we may want to think that this story is for those other people, those prideful people, those Pharisees, I think Jesus might have had us in mind too as he told this story. So what does he want to say to us this morning? Well, the story begins in the temple, in prayer, which is significant. Prayer is one of the most intimate practices of our faith. And in prayer, you discover what a person's true allegiances really are. Prayer reveals what we really care about, what we really believe about God. And so Jesus sets this story in prayer, not so much to teach us how to pray, but more so to uncover what are the dispositions and the characteristics and the allegiances we're called to have as God's people. What sort of people are fit for the kingdom of God? Jesus starts by giving us two contrasting characters in the story. On the one hand, you have the Pharisee, a man who was held in high esteem in his community. The Pharisees were well-respected and their job was really to protect the purity of the law. And this Pharisee seems to practice what he preaches. He says that he fasts twice a week, which is above and beyond what was called by the law. And he gives away a tenth of all of his possessions. This is a good guy. This is the kind of guy you want on your church committee. On the outside, he seems good. But the more the story unfolds, the more we see his rotten insides. First, we observe that the Pharisee stood by himself as he comes into the temple to pray. His code of holiness and purity demanded that he exclude himself from the presence of the sinners, the adulterers, the robbers. He thought his superior status entitled him to a separate space. So he separated himself. He, he excluded himself from this community of outsiders and outcasts. Then as soon as he opens his mouth, we notice that something else is off. He, he starts with all the right practices. He's got prayer, he's got fasting, he's got tithing, but his heart isn't in the right place. He starts with what seems like a Thanksgiving psalm. God, I thank you. But instead of filling his Thanksgiving prayer with praises to God, he praises himself. He says, thank you, God, that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. And right away, he shows his cards. He can't hide his truest self in prayer. And his prayer reveals a few core beliefs that he has about God in the world. First, the Pharisee believes that he's the one who's in control, not God. He doesn't thank God for anything and he doesn't ask God for anything because he's the one holding all the cards. He's the one moving all the pieces of around. He's the one in control. Second, he believes that he is righteous, not God. He thanks God not for God's righteous acts, but for his own. He doesn't ask for justification. He doesn't ask 
for mercy or grace because he doesn't feel like he needs it. He's got his, this righteousness thing taken care of. Last, he believes that he is the focus, not God. It's almost like he's giving God his resume here, saying, look at all these amazing things that I've been doing for you. His focus isn't on God. His focus is on himself. The Pharisee is entirely self-focused, self-reliant, self-righteous. But then you have the tax collector, someone who would have really represented the worst of the worst. We have a pretty charitable view of tax collectors today, but back then they were really hated. They were in charge of collecting taxes for Rome, which was an oppressive and evil empire who trampled on its Jewish subjects. And the tax collectors represented some of the worst parts of Rome, their, their hunger for money and power, their greed. What's more, tax collectors were known for exploiting their own countrymen, demanding more than what Rome actually wanted and needed and lining their own pockets. These were not honorable men. These were not the good guys. But Jesus had a soft spot in his heart for tax collectors and would often paint them in a positive light. And that's what he does here. Jesus tells us that the tax collector stood at a distance, much like the Pharisee did, but the tax collector does it for far different reasons. The tax collector distances himself because he knows that he's hated. He knows he's on the outside. He knows that he's not even worthy to stand in the presence of God's people. What's more, the tax collector would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast. The tax collector tells us everything that we need to know simply through his body language here, his remorse, his regret, his humility. And then he only needs a few words, six, to be exact, compared with the Pharisees, 29. He says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Do you notice how different that prayer is, how intimate, how real, how raw? His prayer reveals a few core beliefs that he has about God just in the same way that the Pharisees' prayer did. He knows that God is in control, not him. So he lays himself at God's feet. He knows that God is righteous, not him. He's under no delusions of grandeur. He knows who he is. His focus is on God, not himself. And so he throws himself at the mercy of the Lord. Jesus says that this man, the tax collector, goes home justified before the Lord. The tax collector, the obvious outsider, is welcomed into the inner circle. And the, Pharisees, the, the Pharisee, the quintessential insider, whose job it was to define what it meant to be on the inside, who defined the boundaries of the inside, he was left on the outside. When God's kingdom comes, the world is turned upside down. Humility wins. And when humility wins, love wins too. I have a friend here who's from the Philippines and his story is really a story of humility in action. Um, he moved here as a kid because his mother got a job in the, at a lab in the US to do um, research at a chemist. She had been trained at a university in the Philippines, had become an expert in her field and was hired at a major university to do research in a lab there. Their family moved from the Philippines to this small college town. You can imagine the culture shock, um, but they did it and they put down roots and America soon became home. A year or so later though, the university cut her program and she was forced to find um, another 
source of revenue. Um, but because of the way that laws around immigration and visas worked, she could only find part-time work delivering newspapers. My friend remembers helping his mom on her routes where she would deliver newspapers to the dorms of the students who attended the same university that she used to work at where she held such a high position of authority. She and her whole family were humbled, but she chose to remain in this humble position for the sake of her family. They needed to put dinner on the table. They needed um, a source of revenue. So she stayed in this thankless job in this humble role for the sake of her family. And my friend looks back on that season as a testimony of her loving sacrifice. Hers is a story of humility and love, a story depicting a life fit for God's kingdom. Jesus gives us a closing proverb at the end of this parable. He says, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, this isn't the first time that Jesus had said these words. Just a couple chapters earlier in the book of Luke, Jesus had said the same thing to a group of Pharisees. This is clearly a message that they needed to hear, but it wasn't just for them. Jesus repeatedly throughout the gospels talks to the disciples about their need for humility and their struggle with pride. Even at the Last Supper, um, after all this time that Jesus' inner circle, his disciples had spent with him, they still struggled with pride. And at the Last Supper, they get into an argument about who is the greatest. Listen to what Jesus says to them in Luke 22. The greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. When God's kingdom comes, we live differently. First, our last, last, our first, those who humble themselves will be exalted. We see it in the tax collector. We see it in Jesus. The way of the kingdom is humility. We are called to be humble people who wash each other's feet, humble people who choose the way of the cross, who choose the way of sacrifice, humble people who put another person's needs in front of our own. We're called to humility. So how do we get there? What does the passage tell us? Um, well, I think the, the parable shows us that humility begins with our focus. Instead of looking at our own acts of righteousness, instead of looking at all these amazing things that we have done, we look at Jesus. And when we look at Jesus, I think we see a couple of things. I think first, when we look at Jesus, we see his majesty. We see his power, we see all that he does and we marvel at how he can hold it all together. We see his sovereignty and that he's in control, not us. And then the more that, that we look at Jesus, I think we realize that he's looking at us too, that he, he actually sees us. He sees me, little me, in this huge sea of humans and in his gaze, I find love and belonging and comfort and hope, all these things that I've been trying to prove that I'm worthy of by all of this, this righteous acts, but he's just giving it to me right here in this intimate look of love. We look at Jesus and we sink and we collapse and we soften in his love, in his mercy, in his grace. And we sink into our identity as sinners, just like those adulterers and robbers and tax collectors. We throw in our lot with the sinners of the world because that's the only group that Jesus is here to save. And we're here for him. He is the one who has captured our attention, our focus, and taken our hearts. This is the beginning of humility, setting 
our eyes on Jesus, away from the performance, away from the spiritual credentials, away from our failures, away from these spirals of shame that we can get in, we look at Jesus. It seems really simple. And yet so often we find ourselves in the role of the Pharisee rather than the tax collector. And we find ourselves caught in our self-righteousness, our self-focus, being self-protective. Let me tell you what this looks like in my own life. Um, I am married to a fabulous man named Josh, and we have a two-year-old and a four-year-old at home, which means that we have countless opportunities throughout the day to either love each other well or step on each other's toes and hurt each other. And what I've noticed, especially during COVID, is that when Josh brings a complaint to me, some way that I have hurt his feelings or been insensitive to him, I can have one of two reactions. Um, first, I can become defensive and almost go on the offense. Um, he tells me some way that I have hurt his feelings and I respond with, well, let me tell you all the ways that you have hurt me this past week. Um, I feel threatened by the conflict I fear comes up, fear takes over. And as Brene Brown says, I, I armor up. I protect myself and my ego with anger and accusations. How dare you attack me? I am amazing and you are lucky to have me. Fortunately, I am enough of a Jesus follower and a people pleaser so that all of that doesn't come streaming out of my mouth. But you can imagine how fun it is in my head and how it would seep out in my tone and my actions. So, so I, can, I can go on, I can get defensive and, and play offense. Um, on the other hand, I can crawl into a hole of shame because of the ways that I have hurt this man that I love. This one instance uh, of me hurting his feelings can Turn, it can kind of be exploded into a narrative of my failure as a wife and even as a human being so I can withdraw, which ends up meaning that Josh, the one who was hurt, ends up having to take care of me. Now, these two reactions, they are classic fight or flight, but either way, there's this focus on self. Either way, whether it's responding in anger or in shame, it's this all about me, me, me. And these dynamics aren't limited to my marriage. They're not limited to marriage in general. These dynamics happen whenever we have hard conversations about politics, about race, about how to live in a pandemic. We just throw anger and shame at each other all the time. And at, this core, at the core of it is this focus on me and what I think I need in order to feel okay at the end of the day. In reality, family, church family, what? what we all need, not just to feel okay, but actually to be whole, is Jesus. This parable is an invitation to come to God as vulnerable, broken, beautiful people who don't have it all figured out and who sometimes, honestly, are kind of a hot mess. We don't get it right. We hurt the people that we love. We're spiritually lazy. More time in quarantine has meant more Netflix, not more prayer. This is an invitation to come to God just as we are, with all of our big, scary emotions, all the things we don't want to show anybody, and let his loving gaze heal us and make us whole. So we look to Jesus, but what are some practical ways that we can grow in this? How can we grow in our humility? I think this passage gives us several suggestions, um, three practices embodied in the story that I think we can emulate. And the first is a practice of community. 
The Pharisee chose to distance himself from people who were different from him. These outsiders, the sinners and the the rebels of the community. And in doing so, he didn't see himself or God rightly. In contrast, I think this passage and really all of scripture invites us to move toward the other, the person who's different from us. We're called to be a community where difference is, is normative, a community of hospitality and welcome where we're all outsiders. But so often, instead of loving the other and welcoming the stranger, we are like the Pharisee and we say, thank you, God, that I am not like those other people. Thank you, God, that I'm not like those Republicans. Thank you, God, that I am not like those Democrats. Thank you, God, that I am not like those fearful people who won't leave their homes in a pandemic. Thank you, God, that I am not like those foolish people who won't wear masks. Do you hear the judgment and the condemnation, the pride, the shame? Instead, we're invited to lay down our ego, that ego that's so sticky, it just wants to stick to us, and instead walk in humility and grace. Now, this is not easy. This kind of humility requires us to listen, to learn, to admit that we don't know everything. Eugene Cho wrote an aptly titled book called Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk, A Christian's Guide to Engaging Politics in which he says, in our culture, speaking up has often been praised as courageous. And there's certainly some truth to that, but maybe quieting down and listening to others is courageous too. We could all listen more, especially to those who've been silenced historically. He goes on to say, be humble, be teachable, be human. Now, this is hard to do in COVID. If our relationships Uh, weren't diverse before we entered into quarantine, that's a hard thing to do while we're doing, practicing social distancing. But we can still engage with and learn about people who are different from us through things like movies and books and documentaries. This doesn't replace relationship. Please hear me there. It doesn't replace relationship. It doesn't replace the hard work of community, but it prepares our hearts for that next step. We are called to live in community with people whose stories make us marvel at the creativity of our Lord. Instead of distancing ourselves from people who are different from us, we're called to move toward the other, to embrace each other across the the barriers and the boundaries that society says are set in stone. And when we do that, we realize how big our world is, how big our God is, and how small we are how little we actually know, and we're humbled. So first, community, and second, a practice of gratitude. Remember the Pharisee's prayer? He started with what sounded like a a psalm of thanksgiving, but instead of actually praising God, he ended up praising himself. I think instead, we're called to have this uh, worldview that God is in control, and we respond with thanks and praise. A few years ago, I was going through a really difficult season. I was having some health issues that were that great combination of of scary and unknown. And I had to take a few months off of work and figure out a way forward. Um, It was a really difficult time, but it was during this season that I began a practice of gratitude. I began writing the things down that I was thankful for, um, writing down glimpses of God's kingdom breaking in, and not just writing them down, but attributing them to his power 
and faithfulness. My daily dose of California sunshine wasn't just coincidence. It was God's light breaking through. Uh, my barista's smile and kind words weren't just happenstance. They were God sightings, glimpses that God was present all around me. This practice of, of gratitude changed me and helped me to see and really understand that God is in control of, of our lives, giving us big things, but also giving us really small things like rose blooms and jacaranda trees and iced tea, good friends in his holy word. This practice of gratitude is central to becoming humble people because it orients us to see that God is in control. So the practice of community, the practice of gratitude, and finally the practice of confession. The tax collector in this story admitted that he was a mess and that he was in desperate need of God's help. But so often we deceive ourselves into thinking that, that we can do this. Um, we can make it on our own. Uh, we can will ourselves into holiness. We can will ourselves out of addiction, out of fear, out of, out of shame. Pride tells us that we are superhuman and our grit can get us through. Humility tells us that we are not in control and that we need God's grace. So we depend on the, the practice of confession to keep things real. This has always been a powerful spiritual practice in the life of the church. In confession, we come before God in vulnerability, raw and real. And we also come before our trusted inner circle. This morning, I wanna invite you to think about who's in that inner circle for you? Who are your people? Who are the people that you have given permission to, to call you out when you step out of line? I wanna be real here for a moment. Um, this is my first pandemic. I heard someone say that in a podcast the other day and I thought it was brilliant. This is my first pandemic. This is our first pandemic, most of us. Um, and when we do things for the first time, we're usually not very good at it. And sometimes when I'm in this pandemic, instead of responding with trust and surrender, I respond with fear and anxiety and pride. And I think it's okay for us to say that out loud. Kids, you started school um, a couple of weeks ago online. You are doing a brave new thing that the adults in your life marvel at. You guys are doing an incredible thing. I think it's okay for you to say sometimes that that causes some fear, that it causes some anxiety. And sometimes you say things and you do things that you don't mean and you wish you didn't do. Parents, it's okay for us to say that this whole thing of doing schooling, virtual school at home and working, it's overwhelming. And the stress of it all is coming out sideways. Single people, it's okay to say that dating in a pandemic or not dating in a pandemic um, is hard as a single person. And it's bringing up fears and insecurities and a loneliness that you thought you had dealt with. For all of us, wherever we're at, who are your people? We've got to find ways to be real with each other, to take off these metaphorical masks and instead confess, I am in desperate need of God's mercy and grace. If you don't have your people, we wanna connect you. Um, we have so many communities here who would love to welcome you um, and walk with you in this way. 
I'm in a group right now that's doing a lot of uh, processing around race. Uh, and in this group, there's a lot of confession. In this national movement that we're in toward racial equality, we're learning that we are a big part of the problem. I've learned a lot from Jamar Tisby in this, who wrote The Color of Compromise. In talking about the church's history with race and racism, he says, history and scripture teach us that there can be no reconciliation without repentance. There can be no repentance without confession and there can be no confession without truth. In the practice of confession, we are confronted with the truth that we are not all that we should be. We have fallen short of God's call on our lives. That's true. But that, thank the Lord, is not the end of it. There is more that happens in confession because in confession, we are also presented with the truth of God's undying love for us. That when we come before Jesus with all of our flaws, he doesn't shame us. He doesn't abandon us. He doesn't engage in this cancel culture of our day. Instead, he says, I'm still here. I'm still with you. And my grace is big enough to hold all of you, to hold all of these scary things that, that you're not proud of. Confess them to me and I will set you free. In confession, we come face to face with the truth of our own failure. But at the same time, we come face to face with the truth of God's grace. Church family, we have all been caught in the web of pride. That is a given. And the more we try to wrestle ourselves free, the more tangled we become. We would be lost without Jesus, who humbled himself and became nothing so that we could be set free. Let me leave you with one final thought as we go. In, in Luke 19, just one chapter after our parable, Luke tells us a real life story of a real life tax collector, Zacchaeus, who encountered Jesus. When confronted with the hospitality and the grace of Christ, Zacchaeus was, was, tra was transformed. He was changed and truly humbled. But that's not where the story ends. Zacchaeus responded to the mercy of God by loving and humbly serving the very people that he had swindled. He gave away half of his possessions to the poor and he paid back anyone he had cheated with interest. The real life story of a humbled tax collector shows us that humility manifests itself through things like service, through things like loving action, through things like justice, through things like sacrifice. Humility coursing through our veins won't let us remain content with the status quo, but, but sends us and propels us into the world to join the God who is on the move. Because it's not about us anymore. It's about God and his kingdom. So church family, may we find ourselves soften in the loving gaze of our savior. And may we humbly join him in his kingdom work. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we confess that we are not all that we should be, that we are not all that you have called us to be. But Lord, we thank you and we praise you that you are everything that you say you are. You are faithful, you are good, you are love, and your grace covers everything that, that we are not. Lord, we would be lost without your mercy. So this morning, God, we, we, we throw ourselves at your feet, beg for your mercy to cover us and make us whole. It's in your name we pray, amen.